I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of Trade Guys, we'll discuss the EU-US data privacy framework, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's visit to China, and the International Maritime Organization meetings. All that and more on Trade Guys. Good afternoon, Trade Guys. Happy Friday. Happy Bastille Day. Not just Friday. That's true. Timo, Thank you very you much. Know this. I, 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 you know, I do know this, but it's escaped me. I need to call my family. They're probably celebrating right as we speak. Yeah, I hope it's not too late. We'll we'll have to shorten the podcast, but because that's that's an important holiday uh, in France. So it, it's an important holiday. Although they're not quite as good at fireworks as we are in the states, I think nothing beats the DC ones. So I'm glad I'm here, honestly. Anywho, we have a few topics to cover today, uh, as interesting and varied as they usually are. The first one is the uh, EU and the U.S. reaching a deal to let data flow across the Atlantic. Uh, the EU, on the 10th of July, approved a deal known as the EU-U.S. Data Privacy Framework that allows companies to freely transfer data between the EU and the United States. The Commission formally recognized the U.S. as a country of sufficient protection for Europeans' personal data adopting an adequacy decision under the GDPR. So Trade Guys, can you tell me about the different parts of the deal? What did the EU and the US have to agree on to uh, conclude negotiations? Well, there's been a long train of different approaches by the two economies to how to deal with data privacy. All along, the privacy principles and standards have been different in the United States and in, in Europe. And the Europeans tend to take it much more seriously in terms of both the rights of individuals. They have this uh, thing in, in their law called the right to be forgotten. So privacy and the internet communications or electronic communications is viewed very differently. It's a, almost a natural right in Europe and protection of individuals is very strong. But the United States has also had surveillance operations that give the Europeans heartburn. So this is one of these arrangements that falls apart on a routine basis. We, we are two economies with two different cultures, two commercial cultures, and we talk past each other on these kinds of issues. So fortunately, you know, Bill usually gives the advice to young people to choose a career in trade because no problem is ever solved. And the problem of data privacy is likely to never be solved. We can get into why that is. And this is a partial solution in that it is a solution from the European Commission in a response to an adverse decision by the by the European courts. But that the, the Commission instrument is opposed by both the data privacy specialists in Europe and the European Parliament. So what comes next is probably another rework loop. And it's a low trust subject, but Bill. You've, you've been around, I think, for every single iteration and uh, waiting for the next one, no doubt. There have always been two issues that have complicated this. One is the requirement that intelligence data gathering, in this case, U.S. intelligence, 
data gathering be necessary and proportionate. And that, of course, are terms that could be heavily debated. As And the European view has been, or at least the European Court of Justice's view has been that in the past, in previous arrangements, this is the third one, that U.S. data gathering, intelligence data gathering has been more than necessary and proportionate, but has been excessive. And the other issue has consistently been, is there a mechanism by which Europeans can complain if they feel that their privacy has been infringed and get an objective, timely and transparent answer. And the court has decided on two previous occasions that the answers to one or both of those questions is no. These The lawsuits in Europe have all been brought by the same person, Schrem, a man named Schrems, who is Austrian. And the cases are, not, are referred to as by name, by name. So there's been Schrems 1 and Schrems 2, both of which... You know, the U.S. is not a party. It's the EU that's a party because it's it's it, they're be, where they're being sued in Europe in the European Court of Justice. And the allegation means that they've agreed to something that violates the GDPR, the European Privacy Directive. So we don't. I mean, we lose derivatively because if the EU loses, then of course the the agreement blows up and we don't have it anymore. So Schrems has already announced that he's going to sue on this one. So there will be Schrems 3, and who knows what will happen. I'm personally expecting that, you know, if I live long enough, we will see Schrems 14 at least, because Schrems is not going to go away, and I think he will continue uh, suing. If he loses one, then maybe this will end, but so far the court has, has backed him. The problem really is that the United States government has not been, in my judgment, been willing to agree to not to sue basically. And they're not willing to simply say that. And up until this case, they have not been willing to agree to a process, a legal process, uh, in which some independent party would have the last word. The previous two cases involved the U.S. government making a decision about whether they had acted appropriately or not. And you can imagine if you ask the U.S. government, did you act appropriately? Most of the time, the answer was going to be, well, of course we did. Schrems was never persuaded, and the European court was never persuaded either. I think this time around, there are some differences. Most of them, uh, I think, make it more likely that the court will approve. There's also the question of what they say about the Supreme Court, which what they used to say about the U.S. Supreme Court, which is that, you know, even the Supreme Court reads the newspapers in the morning, meaning that they eventually pay attention to public opinion. I think probably you could dispute that now, but that's also a question in Europe. This is an agreement of enormous consequences, because if we don't have it, it's going to be very difficult for data to flow freely back and forth across the Atlantic. And for not just financial institutions, for which this is fundamental, but for manufacturers and for anybody else whose supply chains basically are based on digitization, including data about individuals or individual customers, this is of enormous consequence. And so if we don't have this, it's going to get in the way of of a lot of commerce and really put a crimp in the further growth of EU-US trade relations. So the fact that the EU has given us an adequacy finding is great news. But as Scott said, it's not the last word. Schrems 3 is on the way. Schrems predicted this will be taken up by the court in 2024. Past history suggests that's maybe when it begins, but I think a decision may be more likely in 2025 or even 2026. So at a minimum, we've bought two or three years of peace. And then, you know, the odds are we may have to go back and do it all again, which is unfortunate. 
Well, it's it's important to stay with it, and Bill's exactly right. It is really commercially important for almost every business to be able to move data between divisions. Things like personnel records when you transfer individuals from one division to another, or uh, product safety testing. Uh, those kinds of things do have occasionally personally identifiable information in them, depending on what the government requirements are for the for the safety justification. And so if you run a multinational R&D program to support your multinational brands, you have data transfer issues that are that are commercially essential. You can't get the products on the market and keep them on the market without those transfers. Thanks, guys. I appreciate the uh, clarification. It sounds like it's a benchmark that we have to clear, but not necessarily momentum for a long-term agreement that will actually be sturdy. One more thing. One of the ironies of this, of course, is that a lot of the controversy about this began uh, with the revelation by um, Scott. What's the name of the guy that's... Oh, Julian Assange. WikiLeaks. Uh, well, not just WikiLeaks. The guy that ended up in Russia who released all this... Edward Snowden. Snowden. Edward Snowden. Uh, thank you. And the Snowden case, uh, which made public the fact that U.S. intelligence authorities spy on other countries' citizens. The irony, of course, is that those same other countries spy on their own citizens and also citizens of other countries, probably including ours. And this was, you know, kind of a inconvenient reality that everybody politely ignored until Snowden and Assange uh, came along and made it all public. And now it, it can't be ignored. Unfortunately, this particular case plays out solely in the case of the U.S., and its relationship with the EU. It does not play out with respect to EU governments spying on each other or on citizens of neighboring countries, which I would argue is is as significant a problem in, in reality as anything the U.S. is doing, but it's not addressed in the lawsuit. I mean, I feel like the, if there's one thing we've learned from the Chinese spy balloon story is that it becomes a problem when the public is aware that countries are spying on each other, even if they were spying on each other in the first place. Speaking of the PRC, Janet Yellen, Treasury Secretary, visited China recently. She met with four of the most powerful Chinese leaders involved in economic policymaking. She was not lucky enough to meet with Xi Jinping, although Treasury officials said that that was never the plan. So after about 10 hours of meetings over two days, Yellen said that she believed the U.S. and China were on a steadier footing despite their significant disagreements. So trade guys, do you agree with Secretary Yellen? What do you think of her visit to China? Has anything of value happened? Well, yes and no. No, nothing of immediate value happened. There were no breakthroughs. There were no spectacular new deals. I had hoped that at most they would come up with recreating some kind of structure for regular contact on economics. And it appears they didn't even do that. Maybe she didn't ask. But in terms of tone setting and trying to get back to a more normal relationship, I think it was an important step forward. I mean, it's it's the middle of at least three steps. Secretary Blinken was there in uh, June. Uh, she just got back and former Secretary Kerry is going next week, I believe, uh, for climate talks. So it's part of a reconnection effort, I think really driven by the Americans, although the Chinese have, have reciprocated on, on these, simply to try to reestablish a more normal conversation and demonstrate that we can, in fact, talk to each other about ongoing problems without having some kind of crisis or without having a three hours of finger pointing and table pounding, which apparently didn't happen with Blinken, didn't happen with Yellen, and I'm quite certain will not happen with, with Kerry. So, you know, 
it's baby steps, but baby steps are better than no steps at all. Uh, I think the fundamental differences, both on economics and on military activities and, and foreign policy, all remain. But I think there's increasing worry here, which maybe echoed somewhat in China, although they won't say so, that the potential for escalation into a much more dramatic level has gone up significantly. And it's not in the interest of either party to encourage that. You know, the risk of missteps, the most obvious being, you know, a military ship collision in the South China Sea or aircraft getting too close together or some economic incident where American CEOs or American senior executives are detained in China, which has happened with other countries that, you know, we don't want to go down that road because it's, it's, it's a dangerous path. So to the extent we can kind of head that off through dialogue, it's a good sign whether it will actually lead to uh, tangible accomplishments, I doubt. But as long as we're talking, um, we're probably not fighting. We're st obviously still spying on each other. <laughs> we just had a hacking incident discovered this week. And then, of course, there's the balloons. So all that will continue. But, you know, dialogue is good. Yeah, actually, it's essential at this point because we're still very reliant on each other commercially. Uh, China relies on the U.S. market for a lot of its product. That we are still the largest, world's largest importer. We're China's largest customer, and their economy is in a slump now. And if without those exports to the United States, it'd be even worse. The United States needs it as part of its supply chains. So for me, this is in the near term. I'm glad we're talking, and I'm, I'm with Bill in terms of we need to have a mechanism to avoid a miscalculation somewhere, which is, the, I think, the real short-term risk. In the longer term, this relationship between the United States and China will be very interesting to watch in terms of economic power and value chains. We have used the power of, of the global market and globalization to construct value chains for a wide variety of products within firms where China is a, is a key component of them. And uh, But now we're increasing the level of sanctions or export controls on, say, advanced semiconductors and the tools to make them. And in the short term, you know, that's a story of where you stand on the chain. China has the mining and refining and the minerals end. We have the high value added, high precision opposite end of the supply chain. And so it's a probably an advantage to the United States and our allies at the moment, but there's a race on as to how do the gap get closed? How does the U.S. provide or find other sources of geranium and gallium, for instance, but, but other components that China is the key source for now? And how fast can China build out its own supply chain, which they'd like to have internally? I think this is an opportunity for a small tangent if we have a moment, which is this question it's that people are writing papers about these days, which is, are we, are we in another Cold War or are we entering into another Cold War? And I think the answer to that is if, if you're thinking about a Soviet-style Cold War, which I at least remember, I think the answer is no for two reasons. One, the economic connections are so much greater and the economic interdependence is so much greater between the United States and China. We traded very little with the Soviet Union, which really pursued a policy of autarky Nobody's talking about complete disentanglement. Companies will make decisions about what to do, and some of them will leave China. Some of them won't. Some of them will create redundant opportunities elsewhere to make sure they can avoid choke points where they're dependent on China. But the interdependence will remain. I mean, what a really interesting question for data wonks to follow is the trade path. Uh, it continued to grow. Big reduction in during COVID 2020, 2021. But 
2022 is back to record levels, two-way trade. But uh, Q1 in 2023 showed a significant decline in two-way trade. It's too early to say whether it's a blip or not. I think when we talk about this in the fall, we'll have two quarters or later on three quarters of data, and we can figure out if that was just a quarterly aberration or whether it's a trend of de-risking. Remains to be seen. But even if it is a trend, it's a trend that it's not like the Soviet era. The other element that we need to process is there's an ideological distinction. The Soviets, you know, articulated and pursued a, a goal of the domination of world communism. And their articulated objective was to spread the communist revolution and get countries all over the world to uh, have their own communist revolutions and basically join the Soviet bloc as communist countries. And this was an ideological thing. I mean, they followed Marx, Engels, and Lenin and, uh, and had a plan. The Chinese don't articulate that same policy. They don't articulate an ideological drive to uh, take over the world. That may be their goal. I mean, who knows? That may be what they would like to do, but they don't articulate it in the same way that the Soviets do. And in fact, their publicly articulated policy is very much the opposite. So, you know, they are not, by their own description, doing what the Soviets did. We are not as totally independent of them as we were of the Soviets in economic terms. So I don't think we're in an old-fashioned Cold War. We're moving into a different kind of war that will be, it won't be, maybe it'll be cool uh, rather than cold, but it won't be the same as the 50s. I think you're right, Bill. And this is more of the Chinese business model than it is ideological contest. If you look at how China has used its state-owned enterprises to forward integrate in markets, it's pretty straightforward. They start off by you know, joining the supply chain by doing the dirty work. They'll gain a foothold because they're willing to operate the mines. They're willing to do the refining, those kinds of things. And usually because China can do that at scale, they will undercut the competition, the global competition for those minerals, as an example. That's how they have an 80% market share of gallium at the moment. Then they basically use the control of access to their massive consumer market and allow the firms they select to move in, either through a joint venture or some other structure, or they just straight up steal the intellectual property. In the meantime, the Chinese firms become successful competitors of those foreign entrants that that have been permitted. And sooner or later, the foreigners get squeezed out. Uh, you can see it now happening in automobiles. Automobiles was a great, the happy hunting ground 20 years ago for foreign manufacturers. Uh, all the Germans and, and even, even Ford and, and General Motors were very active in China and had successful businesses going on. The best-selling cars now are all Chinese cars. Probably going to be that way into the, long, into the future. So that same thing will likely happen in semiconductors. This is a different model and different approach, but I, repeating that pattern is what I'm expecting. I see. But coming back to the Yellen visit, as you said, Bill, we're seeing baby steps, at least. And baby steps are usually where we all get started. So, so that's something. Anyhow, to come into our last topic, uh, last week at the UN International Maritime Organization meetings, countries signed a deal to reduce shipping emissions and defer the decision on shipping levies. Emissions are now to reach net zero by or around 2050. Uh, so Bill and Scott, what are, in your opinion, some implications of these new emission standards and the potential shipping levies or additional maritime regulations on, on international trade? 
Well, let me just uh, say, as we're on Bastille Day and 10 days past Independence Day, one of the blessings of liberty is the United Nations does not get to tax me as an American citizen. They don't have the power to tax, uh, which is probably a good thing, because that's what they mean by shipping levies. This maritime group is within the UN umbrella, I should say. So they're, they're doing a lot of talking. And now I would credit one thing, is that the people who are concerned about carbon footprints are finally working on the part of the transportation system on the, around the globe that actually produces 80 plus percent of the carbon. There's been a lot of effort on personal owned passenger cars, uh, electric vehicles being the, the obvious one, uh, but that's a relatively small part of global transportation. And if you really want to deal with carbon, you're going to have to deal with commercial transportation, whether that's ships or locomotives or long haul trucks or delivery vans or whatever it might be. There, I think the, the problem that all along and the reason it's been more straightforward and, and an earlier priority to use subsidies to create interest and volume, therefore research into uh, electric cars, is that replacing an internal combustion vehicle like a ship with a battery powered vehicle or something like that, I don't know what the, the approach is, is really going to be quite costly. I mean, if you look at the vehicles, the sh you look at ships now, we started with wind power and then moved to steam power and coal was the main source to internal combustion, which now we have diesel. Uh, so you've got to ask yourself always the question of the energy transition is what are you transitioning to? I don't know the answer to that. And I hope People who are setting goals to get to net zero have thought about that. My one suggestion, of course, is nuclear, uh, which is uh, the Nautilus submarine, uh, which was the first nuclear submarine, was launched in, I think, 1953. So 70 years ago. We actually know how to do that, but I don't know what to say. I understand the importance of the goals, and I'm glad they're setting ambitious goals, but the people who are supporting an energy transition can say what they are transiting from. I can mention a couple of alternatives. I mean, I think this is an area where the market will decide. I think that probably works best to see which technologies emerge and everything else with climate. The answer is, seems never to be a single silver bullet. It seems to be a whole bunch of partial things. In this case, I can talk a little bit about two of them. One of the most intriguing ones, which I know very little about because I just read about the other day, was actually a return to wind. Uh, and the use of high-tech sails, because there is a lot of wind out there on the oceans. And, you know, for hundreds of years, that was the only method of locomotion. But it's, uh, it's a useful resource. And people are looking into the idea of sort of high-tech retractable sails that can be brought up when the wind is right and used to not as sole source of power, but as a source of power that will make things move, you know, faster and certainly cleaner. The other one, which has been studied more extensively, in fact, we at the Shoal Chair did a paper on this a couple of years ago, is the use of hydrogen in ocean shipping, which appears to be certainly a viable technology. There are a number of issues that have to be looked at with respect to it. The biggest one is how you capture the hydrogen, or the, the, whether you compress it into smaller units, which requires its own technology, but saves a lot of space, uh, or whether you use it in gaseous form, which takes up a lot of space. It's probably not very practical, but companies are looking at that. 
There is, of course, the debate about how green you are is depends on how you make your hydrogen. It can require electric power because, you know, the most common approach is you're basically splitting hydrogen and oxygen atoms in water, taking the H2 in H2O and turning it into fuel and putting the oxygen presumably into the atmosphere. Well, your propulsion is still internal combustion, which I think I think is an advantage to that approach. If you're using electricity that is fossil fuel provided, this is not really green. But people are developing techniques for green hydrogen, making it with hydropower, for example, or other means. So it's an area of significant technological ferment, and we'll see which one, which technologies emerge on top. I guess there's a cautionary element there that deserves a note that, uh, and the solar panels are an example of this. Someone did a paper on this that looked at how the Chinese have shaped the development of solar panel production in the world and observed that really what they did is they picked what they thought was the best technology and poured a whole bunch of money into that, ended up as the global leaders in manufacturing of solar wafers and, and, and panels using the technology that they favored and spent a lot of money doing it. The interesting question is that in the process of doing that, they shoved off stage other people pursuing other technologies, solar technologies that might have been better or might have been more efficient or might not have used the same combination of minerals and instead used some that were more globally prevalent. So in a sense, this, this was industrial. This is the downside of industrial policy, if you will. If you pick a winner too early, there's the risk that you make the wrong one the winner. And if you pour enough money into it, you know, they win. That's what happened in the Chinese case. But in doing so, they may have forced out of, out of research and out of the marketplace companies that actually had better ideas. One of the things that we've just gotten done, finished working on is part one of our export control paper. And one of the technologies that we looked at is quantum. And that's an area where there's a number of different technological approaches underway. And we concluded that one of the things that's important is to see how they develop and not have the government pick one and de facto force the others into bankruptcy. So I hope we don't do that mistake in other areas, including like ocean shipping, because it's one thing to be cautious of. That's a great point, Bill, is that where the governments can be helpful is on scaling up once you do have a winner. But if you pick the winner too soon, you close off opportunities that may cause you to sub-optimize. In any case, look, it looks to me like people are hunting where the ducks are. Uh, if you're going to work on transport carbon emissions, work at the commercial space. Forget the passenger cars. They won't amount to that much uh, globally and go after this, the big target of industrial and commercial transport. And like I said, hopeful ideas. Uh, maybe we'll get somewhere. I guess we'll see where those uh, emissions limits take us. So if I'm summarizing this episode, this is a data privacy deal that will likely be challenged, a yell and visit that didn't yield much, and tentative emissions limits. So I think the title of this episode could be Baby Steps. Uh, that seems to be the theme of the week. Could be a lot of things. Yes. We'll, we'll leave it up to you. And you can take the rest of the day off then. Uh, well, wait a minute. Don't say that so quickly. He's got other things to do. Hey, it's a holiday. It's a holiday. <laughs> I think Scott's on to something. It is a it is a national holiday for me, Bill. I think. Oh, well, that's a fair point. I don't want to be uh, nationalistically discriminatory. So, all right. Yes, you want to be culturally sensitive. I appreciate you doing that in advance. This forces me to be culturally sensitive to the French. Yeah, yeah it's a drawback. But, you know, you, you limited choices on a Friday afternoon. Yeah. You, sh you should have thought about that before hiring me, Bill. Too late now. Too late now. Thanks for this episode, Trade Guys. I'll see you another week. To our listeners, 
If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.